Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Quibuka, Remembering Rwanda. It's based upon the lectionary text for Sunday, July the 20th, 2014. This week marks the 20th anniversary of the end of the Rwandan genocide on July 18, 1994. Philip Gurevich called it one of the defining outrages of humankind. He writes, At no other time in the history of our species were so many of us killed so fast or so intimately. Roughly a million people in a hundred days, most of them butchered by hand, by their neighbors, with household tools and homemade weapons, machetes and hoes and hammers and clubs. The killing was programmatic, a campaign prepared and orchestrated by the state to exterminate the Tutsi minority in the name of an ideology known as Hutu power. For the last three months, as it does every year, Rwanda has held public mourning rituals. All around the country, banners proclaim a single word, Kuibuka, remember. Remembering can be difficult. About half of Rwanda's population wasn't even born at the time of the genocide. And as Gurevich points out, memory is a two-edged sword. Remembering can facilitate national reconciliation, but it can also reopen festering wounds. While Rwanda remembers its genocide, most of the world will ignore it, just like it did 20 years ago. Just like the world ignores other humanitarian catastrophes in Africa today. Like the Central African Republic, where experts fear another genocide, or the civil war in South Sudan that threatens a famine, or the world's deadliest conflict since World War II in the Congo, with 5.4 million excess deaths, and Boko Haram in Nigeria, the seventh largest country in the world and the largest in Africa, with a population of 174 million. Not to mention failed states like Libya, Egypt, Somalia, and Zimbabwe. There are some notable exceptions to all the forgetting, like Christians and NGOs that support hospitals, orphanages, schools, and disaster relief. But these are rearguard actions in apocalyptic conditions, and no substitute for civil societies, the rule of law, and stable governments. And so the world forgets Africa, which it construes as a little geopolitical significance. But in the Christian scheme of things, whereas we forget, God does not forget. God remembers. The Old Testament story this week about Jacob's dream reaffirms the global reach of God's redemption. 
God cares not only for me and my country, he loves every person in all nations. When God called Abraham to form a nation for himself, he intended to bless not only Abraham's family, but as we read in Genesis 12:3, all peoples on earth. When he repeated this divine call to Abraham's son Isaac, God also repeated the global reach of his redemption. In you, Isaac, all nations on earth will be blessed. And when Isaac's son Jacob used a rock for a pillow and dreamed a dream at Bethel in the lectionary reading this week, once again God repeated verbatim, In you, Jacob, all peoples on earth will be blessed. No person or nation is forgotten by God. The only favoritism that God shows is his unconditional love for everyone. And the God of Psalm 9, 139 for this week cares deeply and tenderly for every human being. He knows every person's fate. The psalmist said that you could never flee so far that you were beyond the presence of God's Spirit. Whether I go up to the heavens or make my bed in the depths, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. The darkest day cannot extinguish the light of God's love. In some indescribable mystery of intimacy, God knew me before I was born. He fashioned me in my mother's womb, and he lovingly ordains all my days. I might feel this a lot or a little, or maybe not at all, but it's still true. Nothing can separate you from God's love. In Matthew 13 for this week, Jesus compares his kingdom of life and love to a field of wheat infested with look-alike weeds. That's an ambiguous and undesirable situation. But Jesus cautions, advises caution when it comes to premature judgments. But there will be a harvest when noxious weeds are burned and the true grain is brought to the barns. Justice will be served. Wrong will be righted. Suffering will be reversed. And in this week's epistle, Paul acknowledges the obvious. He employs sober language to describe the ambiguous history of all creation. On the one hand, and so true to our experience, he acknowledges cosmic suffering. These sufferings provoke feelings, he says, of frustration, futility, weakness, and subjugation. He says we remain in bondage to decay. Like a woman in childbirth, all creation groans inwardly and outwardly. The pain can feel unbearable. So Paul is brutally realistic about our human condition. But Paul also exudes confident hope. His vision of God's redemption includes not only all peoples and nations, but the entire cosmos. We live in eager expectation, looking forward to a future glory that will far eclipse 
present suffering. The ultimate destiny of the cosmos is liberation and freedom, adoption and redemption. The scale and scope of this future hope includes what Paul calls the whole creation. There's nothing niggardly about Paul's view of the end of history. He never says how or when this will happen, but he never equivocates whether it will happen. My mother, who bore six children, once described the pains of childbirth as the hardest to bear, but the easiest to forget. Paul admits that his view of the end of history is an unseen hope. Our penultimate view is cloudy. We see through a glass darkly. Much of what we experience causes us to doubt, like Rwanda's genocide. But at the end of the day, Paul is the ultimate unflinching optimist. By its very nature, you hope for the unseen rather than the seen. The not yet, as opposed to the already. Who hopes for what she already has, Paul asks. So while we hope for what we admit we don't have or can't prove, we do so, urges Paul, with patience and confidence. Because of the character of a good God who never forgets, nothing evil will endure, and nothing good will be lost. For books this week, I review a fascinating tiny little book by Flannery O'Connor, A Prayer Journal, New York Farrer Strauss Giraud, 2013. It's 96 pages. When Flannery O'Connor died from lupus at the age of 39, she had published a modest amount of work, two novels, 31 short stories, and some essays and reviews. But that was more than enough to establish her reputation as one of America's greatest fiction writers. There have been 200 doctoral dissertations and 70 book-length studies of her work, and a recent new critical biography by Brad Gooch in 2009. O'Connor wasn't just a great writer. She was also decidedly Christian. She attended daily mass most of her adult life and described herself as a 13th century Christian and hermit novelist. She read broadly and deeply in Aquinas and other theologians. For her, the craft of her art, good stories well told, was an end in itself and a sign of God's grace. The content of her fiction was her confession of faith. She writes, My subject in fiction is the action of grace in territory largely held by the devil. To those who complained about her grotesque and deeply flawed characters, she said, There's nothing harder or less sentimental than Christian realism. 
When O'Connor was only 20 years old, she left her home in the Deep South to study at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. While there, she kept a prayer journal from January 1946 until September 1947. The journal demonstrates how early and how strongly she sensed God's call to a writerly vocation. She prays to be a good writer and is self-conscious about her talent. Anything good that she writes, she says, comes directly from God as his gift. She confesses her ambition. She worries about mediocrity as a believer and as a writer, and she gets discouraged on both fronts. She frets about atheist hostility to her faith, and so she says, I stagger between despair and presumption. Flannery O'Connor's friend and colleague, W.A. Sessoms of Georgia State University, provides a short introduction to this book. The journal itself is short, <clears throat> only about 40 pages, and most interestingly is followed by a facsimile of the original Sterling notebook in O'Connor's owned handwriting. These prayers of consecration and commitment found their fulfillment. While writing the prayer journal, Flannery O'Connor was also working on her first novel, Wise Blood, from the year 1952. Once again, Flannery O'Connor, A Prayer Journal, 2013. For films this week, I review a title from Austria, Spirits of Mozart. It's a few years old, from 2006, but well worth watching. Spirits of Mozart. The year 2006 marked the 250th anniversary of the birth of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Mozart lived from 1756 to 1791. This live performance by the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra was one of the many birthday celebrations of the musical prodigy from Salzburg. For Mozart lovers, there were two hours of some of his most famous music, overtures, a violin concerto, arias from The Marriage of Figaro and the Magic Flute, medleys, and interestingly, three different improvisation sets that featured contemporary groups. It's mostly music with very little narration between the pieces. I watched this film on Amazon Instant Video. Spirits of Mozart from 2006. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by the famous Robert Louis Stevenson. Stevenson lived from 1850 to 1894. Stevenson was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, the only child of an intensely religious family. 
When he was 17, he entered the University of Edinburgh, ostensibly to study engineering like his father. But even as a young student, Stevenson knew he was destined to be a writer. Although he's best remembered for his novel Treasure Island, he was a prolific writer. When he died of a stroke in his house on Samoa at the age of 44, his collected works would eventually run to some 30 volumes. The poem we've posted is called The Celestial Surgeon. If I have faltered more or less in my great task of happiness, if I have moved among my race and shown no glorious morning face, if beams from happy human eyes have moved me not, if morning skies, books, and my food in summer rain knocked on my sullen heart in vain, Lord, thy most pointed pleasure take and stab my spirit broad awake. The Celestial Surgeon by Robert Louis Stevenson Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 20th, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.